And so we've been doing a sermon series on why the church does X, Y, Z, why blank. And so uh, this week, the title of my sermon is, is Why Missions? And I have to confess to you guys, you know, when, when we uh, pick out the sermon series, when the pastors kind of delegate who's going to do what, I don't have much say, you know, because I'm an associate pastor. It's like a fake pastor. It's like not a real pastor. It's like assistant to the regional manager. Like I don't have any real power. And so they kind of just assign me missions. And to be honest with you, I wasn't super excited. Don't tell anybody. See, there are some cool topics like we've done in the past, the past three weeks. Like for me, when it comes to scripture, I love reading scripture. It's not always easy, but when I do it, it's always joyful. I like study it. I find cool things. I love it. Prayer, I love praying. Talking, I love talking. You know, I just talk to God. It's wonderful, right? Uh, what else did we have so far? Uh, what was it? Singing. I love singing. It's joyful for me. Maybe not for you guys in the crowd, but for me, I love singing. And so for me, this was, this was the one that honestly, it feels like work to me. Like when it comes to missions and evangelism and outreach, it's not always super exciting to me. And so I was even talking about how I can think of times where I was like discouraged from doing missions and outreach. Remember when I was at Wheaton and they had this outreach group that would go out every Friday night and I joined one time and I went to this Taco Bell and there's this guy there and I went up to him and I built the boldness and the courage to say, hey, do you want to know about Jesus? And he didn't say anything. He just laughed. Like he literally just laughed. And I remember being like so discouraged and being like, dude, like you're, like you're at a Taco Bell, like you're laughing at me, man, like joke's on you. Like when you have diarrhea later, you know what I'm saying? But like, to me, I remember being discouraged from that. I remember talking to friends, like, who I've known my whole life and sharing the gospel. And it was good. It was eloquent. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 it was beautiful relic, uh, uh, rhetoric. Clearly not now. Right? It was, it, was, it was beautiful. And he even told me after I shared the gospel, he said, man, that was powerful. That was good stuff. I, I, I just don't really want to do that right now. I remember that rejection. I remember time after time again trying to share and people arguing with me or rejecting me or literally laughing at me. And so when I think of why missions, it was actually a hard question for me to answer. Like, I don't know if it's the same thing for you guys. If you have those moments where you're like, this feels like hard work. Like, it's not very joyful. It's not very fun. And so I had to wrestle with this question, and fortunately I found this passage um, that we eventually read for today from Paul, and I think it kind of helped me build my thesis for why I think we as a church should engage in missions. And so my argument today is that uh, we engage in missions because there are people we often encounter who long to be saved by Christ alone. It's long. But we engage in missions because there are people we often encounter who long to be saved by Christ alone. So let's start with this idea that, that, that there are people we often encounter. And so this might sound weird. Uh, I don't know if you guys realize this, uh, but there are uh, people that you encounter more than others. Am I moving too fast for anybody? No? That, that makes sense. Right? There, there are people you see 
more than others. I think most of us by now, we have a very set like routine or rhythm to our week. We tend to go to, uh, you know, to the train around the same time. Uh, we, we go grocery shopping around the same time. Uh, we have our favorite barber shop. We go to the gym around the same time, or at least we think about going to the gym around the same, you know? Like we have this rhythm to our week. We have this routine. And what happens over time, I think most of us have, have realized that we kind, of, we kind of see the same people, actually, around the same time. People whose rhythm intersects with, with our own. And I start with this point because I think the reason why missions often feel so difficult for the church is that a lot of times we don't know where to start. We get almost overwhelmed by the task that God has given us. Like if you're a Christian, chances are you could think of many people who do not believe what you believe. You can think of many people who would not confess faith in Christ. Uh, and chances are, I mean, you see him outside these four walls. You see him inside these four walls. You see, you see uh, Hollywood figures. You see popular figures. And, and you almost get overwhelmed by the task to share the gospel with the world. Like the world? Everybody? It's, it's overwhelming. And to me, I think sometimes we get uh, paralyzed in the analysis of where to start. Like, do we start with our neighbor? Do we start with, like, do we DM, like, somebody on Instagram, like an influencer? And, you know, and, and you guys laugh, but literally I had a friend who DM'd, it was one of those Kardashians, one of the young Kardashians, Chloe, I don't know, one of the Ks, and DM'd this person and shared the gospel, like, on Instagram. And I was like, I, I kind of respect, you know, I was like, I, I kind of respect that drive. I didn't love that he, like, added his number at the end, and like, asked on a, but I was like, I respect the gospel part that you did, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and to me, I, I get, it's like, where do, we, where do we begin? And I think that for the church, we see all these people, and we become overwhelmed. And so I start with the idea that there are certain people that we encounter more often, because maybe, and I'm not sure about this, but maybe God is smarter than us. And, and maybe he kind of knows what he's doing. And maybe he planned things out a little bit. And perhaps he has us in specific places, meeting specific people for specific reasons. And so perhaps for us, when the task of outreach feels overwhelming or too convoluted or grandiose, we can just start with the people that God has placed right in front of us. And I think that's where Paul started. In the passage we read for today, uh, he's talking about how he longs for certain people to be saved. And the certain people he's talking about is, is the Jewish people, people who were in Judaism. And you might think, oh, maybe it's just like general Jews, but, but Paul was a Jew, and so he's talking about his friends. Like most likely Paul is talking about people he knew. Family and coworkers, people he went to the marketplace with, people he studied the law with. Chances are when Paul talks about the mission that we have, he has faces and names in mind. When you think of outreach, do you have specific faces and names in mind? 
Are there people that you think about? Or perhaps it's often hard for the church to understand why we engage in evangelism because we forget that it starts with the individuals that God has placed in the routine of our lives. Now, before we move on, uh, I mean, you guys know me. I have to go on at least one good rant uh, and to have a good tangent here. I think a little bit why starting with your immediate social circles is both important and just practically effective. And it stems from actually verse 1 that I read from chapter 10 where Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God uh, is for them that they would be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God. And this phrase stood out to me. I could almost hear the urgency in Paul's voice, the desperation he has for the people he's talking about to be saved. And I think to myself, when I hear Paul talk, I think he really loves these people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think he genuinely just loves these people. And I think it's possible that we should start with the people around us that we encounter because those are the people that we could actually learn to love well. Like Kim Kardashian's a little bit harder, right? Well, she has Kanye, who I guess is good now, so he could help out. I don't know. And so uh, I have to to pause here because I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually consider myself an expert uh, on love. And so I've preached on love and I've taught on love. And some of y'all are haters. Some of y'all are like, haven't you been single for like 40 years? Um, first of all, no, that's rude. It's been like 35 years. Uh, but I went on a date last year, so, you know, things are looking up. Anyways, but my point is, is that I, I have a lot of friends, though, who are married, right? So I learned from them. And so I've, I've talked to a lot of my friends about their relationship from when they first kind of met their spouse, when they were dating, to they're engaged, to when they're married. And I learned some things about love that I think is actually helpful for us in this conversation about missions. And one of the characteristics about love that they taught me uh, is that love makes you do crazy things. I have a friend who shared a story about how he was, uh, he was friends with this girl, I think for two, three years in high school, and they're about to graduate and go their separate ways, and he realized he really, really liked her. And he was scared if he waited that they would never meet up again. And so she was somewhere overseas, like, hanging out with her friends, and he bought a flight to go to where she was to surprise her and hang out with her and eventually ask her out. Like, he left the country to ask this girl out. I'm like, I don't even leave Wicker Park to ask girls out. You know what I'm saying? Like, this dude left the country, right? Like, love makes you kind of do crazy. It's it's his wife now. Good job. Like, love makes you do crazy things. I I mean, we'll talk... We'll talk, we'll talk about that afterwards, Marie. We'll talk about that afterwards. There's a distinction. It's true. It's true. Good point. But, but the thing is, uh, for, for him, and I'm lost, Marie. You threw me off. Where am I at? Where am I at? Okay, 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 guys. Okay, guys. So love, <laughs> love makes us do crazy things, but not just like random crazy things, like yell on the street, right? But one thing that love does well is it makes us fight our natural instinct to only care about ourselves or to primarily care about ourselves. Like there's something about love that makes us at times forget ourselves and forget our own shame and insecurity and fear. 
in order to make someone else feel free and secure and safe. There's something about love that does not weigh the price of helping another. There's something about love that's a little bit costly at times. And I'm talking about this because I, I wonder if the church often struggles with missions because we don't actually love the people we preach the gospel to. Like, we don't really love them. I, th I think that we have outreach attempts, but sometimes there's, like, no cost to it for us. Sometimes we don't really talk to that coworker. We put our headphones on in the gym and ignore everybody. We kind of just like smile or try to avoid our neighbors. And as soon as engaging with anyone becomes uncomfortable, we just stop doing it. And I get it, I get it. Like we're introverted, right? Like we have social energy. We don't just want to waste or spend. Uh, right? I mean, it's hard work getting to know a new person. You have to ask them where they're from, what they do. You have to pretend you know what they're saying. You know what I'm saying? If I had a dollar for every data analysis here, I'd have money to buy a dictionary to look up what that actually means. But I always pretend I know what, they, you know what I'm saying? But, like, it, it, it costs social energy to, like, have these conversations. And a lot of us, we're introverted. And it's a lot easier to talk to people who give us something in return. Like at least they're interesting or they make us laugh. And so we want to save our energy for those people. But that's not love. Like that's not love. It costs us nothing, like almost nothing at all. And so it makes sense to me why Jesus would say, what good is it just to love the people who love you back? to love the people who are easy, to love the people who are funny. He says, no, 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 love your enemies. Like, talk to that person who's kind of weird. Like, listen uh, to the person who's kind of annoying. Like, get to know that, you know that person that really drives you crazy, really gets on your nerves at work? That person, invite them to your home. Share a meal with that person. Because when you do, what you will find is that your heart will actually begin to soften towards them. I can't tell you how often I've met people, and at first, I'm like, I don't think we're going to get along. Like they have annoying tendencies or idiosyncrasies, or they're, they're mean, or they do these things. And I'll kind of try to avoid them for a while until God always convicts me. And I'll talk to them. And I'll actually listen to their story. And by the end, my compassion is always brought out towards that person. And it's hard, but I think that it takes that first sacrifice because if the church is too introverted to love people well, we are saying that our social energy is more important to us than what God did on the cross. And so love is costly. One more characteristic of love I want to talk about um, is that love is persistent. It's an unwavering commitment. Uh, I've heard that a lot from the married couples. You have to just commit, they say sometimes. It's not easily discouraged. It keeps marching on even when it is opposed or rejected. 
Love does not always wait to be invited in or reciprocated. Love like has a mission to care for another, and it will not stop until it succeeds. So I think about that friend again, like I said, who I shared uh, the gospel with. It's been, I think, five years since we've had that level of conversation about Jesus since. And I test and I tease and I throw things out about Christ and my faith in the church. And he'll bite on some stuff, but for the most part, I could tell he doesn't really want to have that conversation. And almost all of me wants to just quit. I might do it. We could just watch sports. We could just chill. We could just play poker. We could just hang out. Like, that would be so much easier. But my love for my friend literally won't let me stop. And so I'm constantly looking for a chance how I can share my testimony of what Jesus did in my life so that maybe he too will believe. And so I wanted to spend a lot of time on this first point about even identifying the people in our lives who we often encounter and then choosing to build a relationship with them and actually love them well because the church will not succeed in outreach if it doesn't realize that first and foremost, missions is an act of love. And so go ahead and take the time to think of the faces and the names of the people that live near you. Who are the people that frequent the gym with you? What are the stories of your coworkers? Every day you have an opportunity to love. When you have a lot of free time at your work or your school, it's an opportunity to love. When you're busy and have a lot of projects lined up, it's an opportunity to love. When that one person who doesn't understand social clues and keeps talking, 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 it's an opportunity to love. And when we take these opportunities, we begin to open people's eyes, not to our imperfect love, but to the gospel of God's steadfast love for them. And so let's start with the people we often encounter in our lives. Okay. That was a long point. The next two will be a little bit quicker. Uh, We engage in missions because there are people we often encounter who long to be saved by Christ alone. So there are people we often encounter who long to be saved. And so after expressing his love for the Jewish people and his desire to be saved, what Paul does uh, in verse 2 is is he says, uh, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. That's what Paul says. The people I want to be saved, people I love, that I know, my friends, my family, my coworkers, they have a zeal for God. And when you first hear that, you're like, okay, that's kind of chill, whatever. But then when you think about it, once again, he's talking about a lot of the Jewish people who he interacted with. And Paul was a very prominent Jewish leader before he became a Christian. And it's, I think, Um, assumed that he had a degree into at least the approval, or at the very least, he did not deny or reject the crucifixion of Jesus. And so chances are that a lot of the people that Paul's talking about in some ways actually were there and spurred on the crucifixion of Jesus. And these are the people that he's saying have a zeal for God. It's, It's weird. 
Because how can both those things be true? And I say that because I think even when I make the statement that a lot of the people we encounter in this world actually have a longing to be saved, that might seem unbelievable to you too. I think oftentimes uh, what makes missions hard for the church is that it seems like people are okay, doesn't it? Like they're fine. Like they don't have any longing for a savior. Like, like they're totally capable and they're totally good. I think what Paul is trying to say a little bit is that you can't just look at the outside or even all their actions because deep down, almost everyone has some sort of longing or zeal to be saved. And it's hard to always tell because we are good at numbing it and masking it. So I thought of a story. um, I was shopping recently with somebody from our church, and she was helping me buy things from the grocery store uh, for my small group. Uh, and so we were in a self-checkout line, and she kind of quietly snuck out of the line, and she came back, back with a bag of hot Cheetos. And I looked at her, and I said, you don't need that. It's not good for you. You can put it back. And she kind of sheepishly put her head down and walked to the aisle and put the Cheetos back and came back. And so when she came back, I felt bad. I wanted to be like a good parent that explained why I said no. You know what I'm saying? And so I, was talk- I said, I know that you're hungry, like you're about to go to dinner, she was telling me, she's late. And I'm like, I, I, I know that you think these hot Cheetos will satisfy the hunger you have, but if you eat them, now your tummy's gonna hurt and you won't be able to enjoy your dinner like you really want to. That's what I told her, right? And it's a hard conversation. Um, I won't say who this person is, but they really like hot Cheetos. Like they really, really, really like hot Cheetos. Like, look how serious they are about hot Cheetos. You know what I'm saying? And so you can put, you can put a picture down. And, and, and so, I mean, I was joking with her. I was like, you know, I purposely, uh, I don't know, I, I won't say who it is again, but uh, I was joking with her. I was saying, you know, I purposely literally don't go shopping, grocery shopping when I'm hungry. Because I know if I do, I'll always buy snacks and candy and stuff because it's a quick fix, right, to kind of assuage the craving I have. And imagine if you do that, if I did fill up on hot Cheetos when I was hungry, right? You could look at me and you could say, oh, I think he's good. I think he's satisfied. I think he has uh, fulfilled his hunger. But in reality, deep down, my body's actually still craving the very nutrients it actually needs because we know hot Cheetos ain't got no nutrients in them, right? And that's what I'm kind of saying is that I can't tell you how often I talk to people who seem like they're good, who seem like they have everything together, like they have no longing, no craving, and I realize that despite their appearances, that deep down there's still a dissatisfaction and a searching for something. And it makes sense to me then why they feel the urge at times to work 80, 90 hours a week or buy the latest fit for the gram, right? Or, or, Or to travel or party and then post it so everyone knows how lit it was. Like, like I, I get why they feel that need, and our culture has this epidemic of constant numbing that comes in every form from the drug of Netflix to actual drugs, because I think there's a degree to which we're scared to face and confess the fact that deep down we're longing for something, longing to be saved. 
And so like Paul says in this passage, the zeal is there oftentimes with people we encounter. But like he says, they just don't know how. It's not according to knowledge. And so I want to answer this question. We're almost done. But what do I mean when I say be saved? What do I mean by saved? Verse 3 in the passage I read, Paul talks about righteousness. He says they don't submit to God's righteousness because they're ignorant of his righteousness. And so they want to establish their own. And so when I think of righteousness, the first thing I think of is like sin and holiness, not doing bad things and actually doing good things. I think the way the church often talks about missions is that the first thing you have to do for people is help them realize they're a sinner. Help them realize how bad, right, they are. And then, like, oh, but it's okay because Jesus can get you to heaven, you know. And that's definitely part of the gospel, right, that we're sinners, we need to be saved. But that isn't quite the saving, I think, that people are longing for that I'm talking about. So the thing about righteousness is not only learning that God cares about all your actions that are right or wrong, but it's learning that God cares about your life in general, that he cares about you. I'll never forget a story of I was preaching a while back at another campus, and when I was done, a girl came to me, and she wanted to talk to me about my sermon. And then she starts crying. And I literally had no idea why she was crying. I was like, dang, was it that bad? You know what I'm saying? Like, that scar, this poor girl from church? Like, and, but she confessed. She said, you know, I've been wrestling in this season with what uh, God wants me to do. And I was beginning to doubt that God actually cared about my life. He said, one thing your sermon reminded me is that he does. That when he looks at me, he actually does have a purpose for me. And when she told me that, that it, it struck me. Because I was like, the Savior, the saving she wanted was not saving from her sins, per se, or saving from not knowing what's right or what's wrong. It was saving from this inner voice that was telling her that her life had no meaning. It was a saving from the voice that was telling her that her life had no purpose, that no one really cared, that deep down she was alone. And I think that's the saving that so many people we will encounter out these walls have. Like they want to be saved from that doubt. That when they leave this world, everyone will forget what they did. And it'll be all for naught. People we often encounter long to be saved in this way. And so lastly, they long to be saved by Christ alone. The last story I want to share is about a friend I talked to a couple weeks ago who was telling me how he got promoted in his job. And it's something about all the new responsibilities he had to do. He was telling me about, uh, you know, how much he was getting paid now, you know. He was telling me about how they had no job openings for me when I asked him, got heard, found out how much he was getting paid. Apparently tech companies don't want pastors. Like, who would have thought, Abe? I don't know. But he was telling me all these things, and I was like, man, that's awesome. I was celebrating with him. I was congratulating him. He's like, yeah, it's cool, but I'm still nervous. I was like, why? He's like, I feel underqualified still. Like, like, like I'm scared when they find out, or they, they might find out I can't actually do all the things they want me to do. And I realized um, that for him, 
He had gotten the promotion literally through all of his own effort. And they were grading and judging his performance. And so it made sense that he knew since he earned it, that he could also easily lose it. And this came to my mind this morning because I was like, you know, we can tell people that God loves them. And we can tell people that God cares about them. That he has counted the hairs on their heads. And it will be encouraging them. We can congratulate them. But I think they'll still be nervous. Because we often convince ourselves that there is something we did in order to get that. And so Paul has to say in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And what he means by law is striving. Striving to do the things to prove that you're a valuable, worthwhile, productive person. Striving to prove to people that you are worthy of being loved. That when you die, they should, they should sing the songs of all the things you did. Striving to have as many people around mourning or at our funerals. Or to congratulating us or affirm us in all the deeds that we've accomplished. Paul is saying that Christ is the end of that law. Because what Christ did is he came down and he encountered people who he saw were longing for a Savior. And so he loved them. It was a persistent love, wasn't it? He loved them even when they eventually rejected him. He loved the weird ones. He loved the ones that were literally outcast, cast aside from everyone else. He loved the people that would eventually throw stones at him, strip him naked in front of his friends and his family. He loved them persistently. He loved them at a cost. Even when he knew it would cost him his life, he loved them. Why? So he could purchase for them and so we could uh, the affirmation that their Father in heaven looks at them and delights over them. That he thinks their lives are valuable. He thinks there's meaning to the things that they're doing. He saved them from the doubt that they are alone. I cannot tell you how many people I imagine in this world, in this culture, where they'll celebrate you one moment and cancel you the next moment, where their love is so fickle, how many people are longing for that good news, are longing to be saved from their doubts, are longing for us to fulfill our mission? If you're comfortable, I'm asking ask you to pray with me. Now, I want to leave time for prayer. And I want to leave time for prayer. I felt like this morning, one thing that God put on my heart is that another reason that missions is so hard for us as a church is that oftentimes the gospel doesn't feel like good news to us. We don't feel like we have anything to really share with people that would inspire them or encourage them. And so perhaps the first mission for us is to actually go to God and pray to him for the joy of our salvation. Maybe there's a time where you were joyful, where you were grateful for what he did, 
where you saw transformation in your life and it was exciting. Maybe you need to pray to remember that time. Maybe you're like me. You need a new testimony, one that lights you on fire, that gets you to share with all the people he might be calling you uh, to around you. Maybe you need to pray uh, for God to make clear uh, the mission, the plan he has for you. Maybe you've been planning yourself. You've been looking at where you can live, who you can marry, your financial situation. And now God says, I want you to come to me so I can show you uh, a better way. Let's just pray to God for a moment that we would first encounter him. And that would be the catalyst for our mission.